Rural hospital closures have an undeniable effect on local access to care and may also result in changes to the cost of healthcare for that population. But it's the relationship between cost, quality, and efficiency that is not always clear. So, how do we better understand the financial access and quality impact rural hospital closures have on affected populations? With a thorough cost review, an understanding of outcomes, and an analysis of competing realities. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hotshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to episode 102. Wow, Rachel, it's hard to believe. 102. We're over 100. Yep. Of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hotshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. Rachel, our guest today is a professor and researcher. Uh, who is highly knowledgeable in the area of rural health uh, with a focus on rural hospital closures and health economics. That's right. We are talking with someone who is passionate about understanding health outcomes in rural communities and the associated economic impacts. Our guest today is Caitlin Carroll, Assistant Professor in the Division of Health Policy and Management at the University of Minnesota. Welcome to Rural Health Rising. Thanks for having me. To start, Caitlin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work in rural health research? Sure. Um, I'm a health economist at the University of Minnesota, and a lot of my work focuses on rural hospital markets and what we can do to get those markets working better for people who live in rural areas. Mm -hmm. Because, as I'm sure you know, rural hospitals are struggling. Mm-hmm. About a third of rural hospitals are unprofitable, yeah. and financial distress has been growing over time. Mm-hmm. And when hospitals become unprofitable, it increases the risk of closure and makes it hard for hospitals to provide high-quality care. Mm-hmm. So in my work, I think about these issues, and I try to think about you know, what sort of hospital infrastructure do we need in rural areas, and how should we pay for that infrastructure? So I'm excited because this is going to be very exciting, Uh, Rachel. Everything that we talk about on this program is really focused on rural health. That's why it's called Rural Health Rising. Right. And how we can can (laughs) rise above all of the challenges, mainly financial. Uh, We've had uh, discussions before, politicians, payer experts, you know, we've done it all. Um, But one of the things that I'm excited about today is what does the research look like? Mm -hmm. And to have a professor uh, on uh, that has the knowledge and the depth of of knowledge that is needed really for us to dive into what what are the systemic things in those respective communities that are that are at play and really just to have someone from a research perspective. I'm excited about that. Yes. So, Caitlin, now that we've established a little bit about who you are and what you do uh, at the university, let's start with the why. Um, we do this on every episode, so we get to know our guests just a little bit better. And I want to ask you the question, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning to do what you do each and every day? Yeah, great question. Um, I have two motivations. So I'm from a rural area myself. Nice. I'm from Lincolnville, Maine, oh, nice. which is a town of about 2,000 people, about two hours up the coast from Portland, Maine. Wow. So I have some personal experience with rural health care. That's yeah. the first motivation. And the second motivation is when I think about, you know, possible policy solutions in rural healthcare, there's no easy answers. If we think about what sort of hospital infrastructure we want in rural areas, for example, there are trade-offs. If we Mm -hmm. think about losing access to, um, you know, hospital, losing local access to care, that raises clear concerns about treatment delay and adverse health outcomes. 
On the other hand, not all communities can provide the full suite of healthcare services, especially, you know, really specialized, complex healthcare services. Some areas might benefit from a system that actually facilitates referrals to care outside of the community. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very motivated to think about those trade-offs and what that means for policymaking in rural health care. All right, uh, Professor Carroll, uh, tell us a little bit about your study on the effects rural hospital closures have on cost and quality of care in those respective communities and in, in the system as a whole. And what were you looking to understand about this issue uh, when you were looking at it? And what were you trying to gain an understanding of, I guess, is, you know, let our listeners yeah. know. So in this paper, I studied the effects of rural hospital closure on Medicare beneficiaries. So we're thinking about mm-hmm. the population of people who are over 65 generally. And the goal of the paper is to understand the effects of hospital closure among people who are most affected by the change. And by that, I mean people who lost their closest hospital Mm -hmm. as a result of closure. Mm -hmm. So I look at these people who lost their closest hospital, and then I compare them over time to other Medicare beneficiaries who um, lost their second closest hospital as a result of the same closure. Mm. So the intuition here is we have a comparison group of beneficiaries that lives in the same local area. They look the same on characteristics, but they don't have to travel farther for care after the hospital closure because they have maintained access to their closest facility. Mm. Mm-hmm. So what prompted this study in particular? I mean, you've done a lot of research in the area of rural health and health economics. What made this an important issue you wanted to focus on and a, an important way for you to look at the problem of rural hospital closures? Yeah, there, there's two reasons I wanted to think about closures. The first is that hospital closure is fairly frequent. Mm-hmm. About 8% of rural hospitals have closed over the last decade, and closure rates have been generally increasing over time. So this is a phenomenon that's not going away, and we need to understand the effects of it. The second reason it's really important to study hospital closures is that the effects are uncertain. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, when a hospital closes, it decreases access to care. That creates clear concerns about adverse health effects for patients with time-sensitive health conditions like a heart attack or a stroke. On the other hand, rural hospitals often struggle to provide high-quality care. So if you think that closed hospitals provide lower-quality care, compared to nearby competitors, then patients may actually be better off traveling farther for care if they are mm-hmm. treated at a higher quality facility. Yeah. So, you know, when we when we had a chance to discuss, you know, your arrival here, um, some of the issues that we have been talking about is what are the secondary impacts of those closures. And we're actually working on a piece right now to highlight that. Um, So what I want to talk a little bit about is some of the cost. So what did you discover in regard to cost and efficiency of care when those rural hospitals closed? Yeah, so there's two ways that we have to think about costs. The first is that when a hospital closes, there are cost savings in the sense that it now costs $0 to run the closed facility. So in particular, there's savings because you no longer have the fixed cost of the hospital. The second way to think about costs is the cost of providing care to patients who are affected 
by the hospital closure. So thinking about Medicare beneficiaries who lost their closest hospital. And what I find in my paper is that spending on these Medicare beneficiaries actually went down. Mm -hmm. And it's entirely driven by a decrease in Mm -hmm. admissions. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. basically, people are getting less care after the hospital closes. So spending on those people goes down. Right. 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 So from a population level, you see, oh, good, here's a cost savings to Medicare. But then when you look at those, look at that population in terms Mm -hmm. of how much care they're actually receiving, Mm -hmm. that's where the cost savings is coming from. It's not from the, not from how expensive it is to take care of those patients' needs. It's less of their needs are being met. That's exactly right. So typically, you know, when we see a decrease in Medicare spending, we're tempted to think about that as a good thing because healthcare spending in this country is very high. In this case, right, the spending is driven by this decrease in admissions, and it's really hard to say if that's good or bad. Um, you know, it could be that people were getting unnecessary care before and are now no longer getting that care, or it could be that you know people are putting off very valuable care because it's really hard for them to to access care at their sort of next closest facility, which could be Mm -hmm. 30 miles away now. Mm -hmm. Right. So then that begs the question, what about the actual health outcomes for those beneficiaries, not just the cost of taking care of them, but what was the end result, which I guess is where you could kind of infer, were they receiving a lot of unnecessary care or were they not receiving, are they now not receiving care that they did need um, based on what their health outcomes were? So how, what was that? you know, discovery that you had about the health outcomes? What was the result there? And then did that conclusion that you came to compete with what you learned about the cost side? Because when when I look at a study like yours, you you really have these two different issues. And we're obviously very biased in support of independent rural hospitals and keeping rural hospitals open. And, you know, one of the biggest ways that we see an opportunity for change is really through, um, you know, the payers and how that is working and whether we're getting paid in a way that actually sets up an effective healthcare infrastructure. Um, But so when I see something like this where it's like, yeah, there was a cost savings, but also what were the health outcomes? One seems good, one seems bad, but they're both in the same reality. So I guess that would be my uh, kind of a complicated question, but, you know, what was the result on the health outcomes and then how did that balance or compete with the cost outcomes? Yeah, so this is sort of the key, really important point is that when a hospital closes, there are trade-offs. Mm-hmm. So the hospital closes and we see some cost savings, but if you zoom in and you look at patients with time-sensitive health conditions, they do worse. So time-sensitive health conditions could be something like a heart attack mm-hmm. or a stroke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They have to travel farther for care after the hospital closes, and they have higher mortality rates. So that's unambiguously a bad thing. Mm -hmm. One important point, I think, to come out of this research is that people typically frame hospital closure as a distance quality trade-off where patients have to travel farther for care after a closure. That's a bad thing, but they might get treated at a higher quality facility. And when I look at that in the data, I don't find a lot of evidence to support this trade-off. So what I find is that when a hospital, a rural hospital closed, Patients had to travel farther for care, but they didn't receive care at a higher quality facility, largely because there wasn't one available in their local area. You know, it's not like your first closest hospital is a small rural facility and the second closest is a big urban teaching hospital. 
The second closest facility was generally another small rural hospital that looked very similar on quality metrics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When you talk about the quality piece, looking at, you know, was it a higher quality or lower quality facility, either that closed or that then became, you know, the nearest options, are you looking at factors like, um, you know, mortality and morbidity and infection rates and things like that? Or are you looking at, you know, access to specialty care? How was that? Because, you know, when you think of quality, that's such a huge umbrella um, of different areas. And sometimes we get frustrated with certain, you know, quality um, measurements (laughs) or awards that don't take into account the reality of what rural hospitals are intended to do and could be expected to do. Right. So it's like, how much access do you have directly to this specialty? And it's like, well, that's not a case where we would ever have access to that specialty. Right. But then we get dinged on that from a quality perspective, depending on how it's being looked at. So in this perspective, with your study, how are you looking at quality? You just mentioned metrics. So obviously there were some specifics you were looking at. Yeah, that's a great question. So quality in this paper is pretty narrowly defined and it's just purely a function of what data it mm-hmm. was available. Right. And so when I say quality, I'm thinking about a risk-adjusted mortality rate okay. at different hospitals. So that is, as as you are well aware, a measure that you know lots of people use and right. it has certain benefits, but it also has many limitations. Your mm-hmm. risk adjustment, for example, doesn't take into account how far people traveled right. to get to a hospital. So that's mm-hmm. going to ding a rural hospital every time mm-hmm. compared to an urban facility. So mm-hmm. Um, that's a limitation right. of what I'm looking at. So mm-hmm. I can't see things like a patient experience score might mean a lot to people, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, and so I think that's a subject for future research. Yeah. And I would, yeah. you know, love to see people dig into that a little more. Like, what do we mean when we say mm-hmm. a high quality rural hospital versus a high quality urban teaching hospital? Right. Right. right, right. And then another question I have on the health outcomes. You mentioned the time-sensitive health conditions and the differences for those patients that lost their second closest versus their closest hospital. Did you look at all at chronic conditions and whether there were any impacts on that, or is that another future opportunity? Yeah, so I did a couple things. So when we're thinking about the mortality results, I looked at patients who had these time-sensitive health conditions like a heart attack or a stroke. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at patients with any urgent condition. Mm -hmm. So an urgent condition might be something like a hip fracture, right? right? Someone falls and fractures their hip. It's certainly urgent. You have to go to the hospital to get that fixed. In my, you know, sort of uh, linguistic framing, it's not time-sensitive in the sense that it's not a minute-by-minute issue if you arrive to the hospital in seven minutes versus 14 minutes, your hip fracture is going to be the same versus a heart attack mm-hmm. that those seven minutes could make a big oh, difference. Absolutely. Right, right. Okay. For chronic conditions, it's harder it, It's harder for me to look at outcomes than I didn't look in this paper. Mm-hmm. The reason is that when we think about, okay, who is getting less care when the hospital closes, it tends to be people with you know, a non-urgent mm-hmm. chronic condition doesn't mean the care is low value. It just means it doesn't have to happen today. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when the sample of people getting care changes so much before and after the closure, mm-hmm. it's really hard to say, well, is there change in health outcomes a function of the closure or is it a function of the fact that there's just different people getting care now? So right. okay. there's no way for me to overcome that issue. And I basically just... um 
sort of say that in the paper and say, right. when we're thinking about health outcomes, we're thinking about the people who had to go to the hospital mm-hmm. no matter what. Right, right. Well, and we also, I think sometimes when I think of rural hospital, I think of our scenario in Hillsdale where we're a rural hospital, but we also own and operate several primary yeah. care clinics, endocrinology, internal medicine, yeah. those things. So we, you know, see a lot of patients with mm-hmm. chronic conditions. And I think that's one of the things that we talk about and you hear a lot of people in rural healthcare talk about when hospitals close, you do lose that access to immediate timely care, but you also expect that there's going to be some change in the complexity of care that those chronic care patients end up needing when they do make it to a hospital because maybe their condition's not being managed, which actually I think, didn't um, Dr. Ramadani talk about that from his study? He did. Yeah, so we had on Cheyenne Ramadani, who is um, a transitional year med student at Bassett in New York, and he did a study when he was at uh, the Penn State College of Mm -hmm. Medicine um, on the effects of rural hospital closures on surrounding hospitals. hospitals. And Mm -hmm. part of what he saw was that the patients that were being seen now at the surrounding hospitals had a higher complexity um, of issues than Mm -hmm. the patients who were seen at the hospital that closed at that time, Um, which, Mm. you know, then you can, uh, you know, assume or posit that maybe that's because they weren't getting the um, care for their chronic condition. Mm -hmm. So, so for the, I guess, so with the cost potentially being a benefit and then the health outcome issue certainly being a negative, as you've said, that it's unambiguously negative how these health outcomes have been um, impacted by the closures. How do you balance that when you're working on research like this? How do you balance those two things um, to try and show, you know, there may be some benefits here, but there are some drawbacks here. And do you yourself try to make a determination or do you have a determination on whether you think one is better than the other or more valuable than the other? So typically what research does to try to trade off sort of cost savings, which is already in a dollar amount, and then a change in health outcomes, so you're talking about people's lives, is um, you try to apply a value to every life year saved. This approach has a ton of limitations and I think, you know, can come across as quite callous. Mm-hmm. It's really a way of benchmarking. Right. Like, but you got to apply some um, numbers if you want to actually give them a hard comparison. Right. You have to apply some numbers. People have tried to think about, you know, how to value this additional life. And so I go through that exercise in my paper using those numbers. And basically what I find is that if you compare the cost savings to the changes in health outcomes, they're about the same. Mm. So it's about neutral. There's a bunch of caveats, though, that I want to sort of throw out there. You could pick a lot of them, but one, if I were to sort of criticize my own calculations, (laughs) would be that I'm looking only at Medicare beneficiaries, right? So if we're thinking about heart attacks even, you know, I'm capturing only a subset of heart attacks. Plenty of people under 65 have heart attacks. There's also really important conditions that aren't represented in the Medicare population, for example, obstetrics, mm. right? One population you think about a lot with hospital closure or obstetric yeah. unit closure is childbirth, right? right? Like people have to go farther for care to deliver their babies. Yeah. And if that is worse quality or they have, you know, a complication on the way, that's a really mm-hmm. bad thing. And that's something you can't study using Medicare right. data for uh, pretty obvious yeah. reasons. So, um so those are a couple of limitations to think about that I've sort of been working on in future work, mm-hmm. in an existing work, mm-hmm. and yeah. 
Um, I hope others do as well. Is there a future where you're able to study an issue like this based on populations that are covered by private payers that are not Medicare or Medicaid? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, and um, I have some work going in this space, but I think a really great new-ish resource for people wanting to study this issue is uh, the HCCI Mm -hmm. data, which is basically looks like Medicare data. It's healthcare claims data, except for people with private Mm employer-sponsored insurance, more or less. I think they also have MA plans and things like that. And so you can see populations, you know, childbirth populations, younger populations, and you can also see prices, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not just Um, utilization that drives spending. But if you have a closed hospital that had a relatively low commercial price and people move to an urban hospital that has a higher commercial price, then you've actually increased spending, right, right? Um, after a hospital closure. And so that's probably not a good thing. So I have some work looking at that that, you know, hopefully will be out Good. Soon. Good. We look forward to that. So uh, twofold question. Uh, First is for our listeners today. Uh, obviously, it's a lot to take in. You know, we're sharing a lot of information. Uh, we've studied the bystander uh, bystander impact and effect. We've looked at, you know, the payers. We've we know what the healthcare outcomes are of the individuals that cannot get to their emergency room in time. Um, but what would you say from your research and the work that you've done is the most important conclusion that can be drawn from this research? That's number one. And then I'm going to follow that up with a couple other questions. So the key question that pops out to me as a result of this research, I think what this research did was sort of frame up some important questions moving mm-hmm. forward. And so the key question to me in rural areas is what services should be provided locally and what services should be provided regionally. Mm-hmm. So for some services like emergency care, there's clear evidence that local access mm-hmm. is valuable. Right for more complicated, maybe chronic conditions, you know the benefits of receiving care at a specialized regional facility might outweigh the cost of traveling farther for care. And so, I would love to see more research that kind of reckons with this mm-hmm. trade-off. Mm-hmm. So, all right, someone's listening, and they say to themselves, well, "That's a lot of research. Accurate. Uh, what next? What do we do?" So what do we do with this information? From your perspective, I guess the first question is, what are you going to do uh, with this research? (laughs) And and then I'm going to ask another question, but go ahead and answer that one. Got to love the research that uh, gets you excited about doing more research because it poses some of those questions. It does. So right now, um, what do you see happening next? If you take your research, obviously you wrote it with an intent to wake some folks up, all right, and to draw some awareness to a very serious issue that's impacting our country in rural health care, what do you see as a next step in this process? I think a next step is thinking about different financing models in rural hospital markets. Currently, there are are lots of programs Mm -hmm. that support rural hospitals, some of them more effective than others. The largest one in terms of numbers of hospitals is the Critical Access Hospital Program, which gives hospitals sort of higher Mm cost-based reimbursements Mm -hmm. from Medicare instead of prospective payments. So you have the Critical Access Program for small rural Mm -hmm. hospitals. There are also 
sole community hospitals, there's Medicare-dependent sure. hospitals, there's these programs that basically serve to funnel more money to rural hospitals to try to help keep them right. open. Even with all these programs, hospitals are closing. Right. Yes. And so I think that something has to give. And so I think I see two new policies that make me feel excited about, you know, where rural healthcare policy is going. One is global budgeting for hospitals. So we've seen that in Maryland mm-hmm. and in Pennsylvania. So trying to move away from payment that is volume-based and move towards payment that is facility-based. I think that's tricky. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's basically tricky to figure out which hospitals should get that new financing, right? You can imagine for an isolated rural hospital where there's no other um, options for people to get care, then those subsidies are really valuable. In other cases, maybe you say, well, the subsidies are not quite worth it. We want to take that money and do something else Mm -hmm. with it. Um, so those hospitals might struggle more. So I think the question is, you know, which hospitals sort of get the the new financing mechanisms. So that's one thing. And then the other cutting edge policy, I would say, in rural areas is the Rural Emergency Hospital Program, which basically gives hospitals, the rural hospitals, the latitude to close their inpatient service and be a hospital that provides emergency care and some outpatient services. I think the idea of focusing rural health care on a select set of high-value local services makes a lot of sense. Whether the rural emergency hospital program includes all the right services is sort of a question for future mm-hmm. research. Right. But I think that we have to get back to this idea of, you know, some services are going to be local, some services we're going to do better if they're regionally mm-hmm. provided because the specialized specialization is so valuable. Mm-hmm. And so trying to move towards a model that facilitates local care for high value services, but pairs mm-hmm. that with some sort of mechanism to facilitate referrals to specialized mm-hmm. care, you know, outside of the local community or brings doctors in at some frequency that allows for access to specialized care um, is really yeah. important. And it all goes back to the payers. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're tracing that all back uh, throughout this program and have mm-hmm. spent a great deal of time talking about what payment models in the future could exist to save rural hospitals for all of the right reasons. The last question uh, is, where do you go next? What's your next research look like as it applies towards this specific topic? Yeah, great. I have a couple um, things in the works. So we've talked a little bit about the price effects of hospital closures. Yeah. That I think is really important. Mm -hmm. I have some work that is looking at basically the impact of the critical access hospital program. So when you have a rural hospital that all of a sudden gets more money under cost-based reimbursement, what do they do with it? You know, how valuable is that extra spending in terms of the health Mm -hmm. outcomes of people who live nearby? And then the final project that I'll raise a flag for looks is not about closure, but it's about um, consolidation mm-hmm. and about hospital merger. And this is an issue I think has gotten not as much attention as it deserves. Hospital closure has gotten a lot of attention for really good mm-hmm. reasons. Hospital merger in rural areas is also very common. Um, and, you know, it's really not clear what we should think about that on the one hand. You know, when hospitals merge, it raises Price. prices in a lot mm-hmm. of cases. 
on the other hand, you know, system affiliation for a rural hospital can improve financing and potentially help them stay open. And so there's trade-offs there that need to be considered as well. Yeah, great point. Um, we are, you know, certainly fierce opponents of mergers yes, and acquisitions, <laughs> but we believe it. We believe in affiliations. I think affiliations are important. Partner, right. Partnerships, right? We re- like to refer to them as partnerships. Are very important for if, us. In something rural that maintains local governance, yeah. Yeah. but still you know, effectively uses other health healthcare resources yeah. to pair up together to the benefit of yeah. the patients and the rural communities. And, and maybe just a suggestion to you when you look at the mergers and acquisitions, <laughs> uh, look at the majority of the big health systems that own their own insurance product that they then yeah. sell back to those rural small hospitals. It's very concerning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Biden Talk administration... Talk about vertical integration. The, the Biden administration looked at... Uh, and was going to take a very strong stance uh, against M&As. Unfortunately, um, th- within just a few months of his presidency, the biggest MA that occurred in Michigan happened. Uh, and, you know, we really heard quickly. It happened really, really quickly, quickly. Fastest in history, hmm. uh, even though the, the uh, you know, Department of Justice and others were, were looking at that. Um, and so there's no really federal guarantee that this is going to be scrutinized, but it needs to be because when they own the health plan, in that in that respective state for that respective market, that is a concern, especially as healthcare costs mm-hmm. rise mm-hmm. as mergers and acquisitions occur. So, just our suggestion for you to look at that. <laughs> yeah, that's and a, that's our a very really specific point. perspective. Yeah, obviously, very, so. very yes. Very <laughs> There's nothing specific. wrong with bias as long as you clearly state it. Correct. Right? No, I'm being <laughs> right. fully biased. Fully yeah, biased. We are 100 biased toward Absolutely. independent rural hospitals. Yeah, we are. And so, yeah. you know, your research, uh, it's incredible. Uh, the, you know, the the understanding for us as a rural hospital executives is that, you know, we have to be advocates about the importance of changing the dialogue. Um, we, I want to get off of talking about payers in the future and talk about quality and access for our patients. It's sad that we spend the majority of our time at conferences and in advocacy talking about payments Mm -hmm. and how hospitals can survive. We need to move beyond that by having a sustainable model. And and let's talk about better access of care through partnerships and through tertiary centers and through those Mm -hmm. type of relationships Mm -hmm. to increase better patient outcomes and to have better quality. But unfortunately, we're stuck right now in just trying to survive as a rural hospital, that some of these other issues are not top of our priority list because we are solely focused on sustaining that local health care. So I think uh, it'll be interesting with some of the research you're doing to be able to compare that with um, some of what we've been looking at lately of the fact that rural hospitals cannot survive on patient care alone. Even though that is our core competency, we do not get paid enough to cover what it costs to provide the care. So that's when all these other programs come into play, like dish funding and Mm -hmm. Medicare-dependent hospitals and all these other things. So I think it would be interesting to see, you know, to look at some of that research in light of some of the things you're working on um, Mm -hmm. and kind of see how those things might might relate and impact one another, especially when it comes to the the systemized approach, too, and how much does that affect the profitability Mm -hmm. of a rural hospital because maybe they're getting better rates from commercial payers, for example, because they're part of that system. But then is there care that is no longer accessible locally because it's being shut down like an obstetrics unit like Mm -hmm. we see a lot of times. So I'm excited to see what you do next. Yes, I am too. I'm very excited too to see what happens because you think, you know, it could be 
good to have some sort of partnership if it funnels money to the rural hospital and helps them stay open, like you were saying. But then system affiliation can also drain yes. resources from a Community. rural area, even if the hospital stays yeah. open for the reasons you just said, like maybe the system decides to close down certain right. service lines and filter those patients to other hospitals. Or their the GPO says we can no longer buy our milk from the local vendor. You have to buy it from their state approved vendor, which is in another county. It impacts the economies mm. in those respective mm-hmm. communities. And we've watched that happen many, many right. times. It's the because cost benefit of economies of scale is. is, you know, if yeah. your economies of scale scale too big, you Correct. lose some of that local yeah. economic impact just from the injection of yeah. cash into the services That's you pay really for. That's really interesting about oh, the absolutely. vendors. Oh, absolutely. We watched that and, and that. We've, we have witnessed not only the closure not too far from here of a psychiatric unit because a big system purchased the hospital and psychiatric care and obstetric care is always losers financially for, but they are huge high need high mm-hmm. community benefit high need in our communities and they're the often they are often the first uh, to really be axed when a merger and acquisition occurs because when they look at it from a cost uh, you know perspective and a revenue perspective they are saying it's too costly to offer that service, so get it somewhere else. The problem is, is that mm-hmm. shrinks. And right now, mm-hmm. you know, mental health services is shrinking in Michigan as smaller institutions that once was able to provide mental health services close, acquired, or merge. Those services are depleted from those communities. And then these patients are left in our community without transportation, uh, without those services, and they then come to our ER where they'll set for weeks and weeks and weeks at a high cost to the payers, Medicaid, mm-hmm. Medicare. Uh, it's it's a terrible, terrible, vicious cycle when you look at it from a for-profit perspective of what services do you cut from those rural, rural communities. So services are impacted, you know, the community's impacted through the economy. You know, the biggest economic engine of most small rural communities is your community hospital, and they pour back in a majority of their revenue into that respective community. But that then goes to the big system now. It goes to the Detroits. It goes to the Memphis. It goes to whatever name the city where the the mothership is, that's where the revenue is booked, and it goes. And sad, very sad for those respective communities. But that's for another episode when we talk about <laughs> payment and the work that you're going to do with that. So once again, Caitlin, our time has expired. It has been absolutely phenomenal uh, to learn about your study, to learn about the research that you've done. Uh, and I'm sure you're an amazing professor uh, in the students. If you're listening to this, make sure you sign up for her next uh, class. So uh, thanks for joining us today, Caitlin. It's been great to have you on the program. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great talking to you. And there is one last item uh, that we do with each of our guests. And you said you were from rural communities, mm-hmm. so you're probably going to be able to answer this question. We like to do a fun segment with each of our guests just so that we get to know a little bit about your rural roots. Um, so we want to know, what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? <laughs> um, sure. Okay. Uh, I think one thing that is relatively unique about growing up in a rural area is going to a regional high school that pulls from lots of different mm, towns mm-hmm. and having like a really long yeah. bus ride then to get to yeah. school. So when I was growing up, I had the bad luck to be the second person oh, picked up by the bus yuck. each morning. And so the bus came at 6.15. I've been there. And in the winter, it's pretty cold and dark at 6.15 yeah. in the morning. So I yeah. remember 
when I was in high school, I'd sit in the living room and I'd watch down the road for the headlights to appear, the bus headlights, and then I'd run outside <laughs> to the end of the driveway to catch the bus so I didn't have to stand outside for too long. Uh, that is and then how long was your bus ride? Uh, probably an hour and a half. Maybe an hour. 20. Oh, I remember those yeah, days. Hour, not quite an hour. I think school started yeah. at seven yeah. forty. Yeah, so getting picked up at six fifteen. An hour and a half. Yeah, we were the we were the first on. Uh, and in rural communities uh, of a large county, you know, you're, the bus route is like a day's oh, journey. Yeah, right. I mean, it's crazy. Right. So I can I I feel your pain, but uh, <laughs> Bill's character. Yeah, I think I'm sure know. there's some of your listeners will <laughs> yes. hear that my bus ride was an hour twenty. Oh, that's, that's nothing. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. We travel both ways up a hill barefoot just to get to school. Yeah, right, right. Well, Caitlin, once again, thanks for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com.